We come now, brethren, to the reading and to the preaching of God's Word. I invite you to open your Bibles this morning to the book of Hebrews and the first chapter of the book of Hebrews and the first chapter, and I'll be reading and preaching this morning on verses 5 through 9, although I want to read verses 5 through 14. Hebrews chapter 1, I'll be reading 5 through 14. I encourage you to read along silently as I read aloud this morning. Here the writer to the Hebrews writes, For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever a scepter of righteousness or uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They shall be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. To which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for your kindness and your goodness to us this morning. We thank you for this opportunity to gather together in your kind providence to worship you in spirit and in truth. And we now ask for the work of the Holy Spirit, the powerful, sovereign work of the Holy Spirit, that he would do what only he can do in granting us an understanding of this text, of applying it to our hearts in such a way that our minds and our thinking is renewed, our conduct, our behavior is transformed, and our desire is to bring you honor and glory in all that we do. But we ask for your blessing now in the work of the Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning, brethren, we want to continue our study of this wonderful epistle, which I've already described to you as an inspired sermon regarding the person and the superiority of Jesus Christ. In fact, it is clear from the first verses of this chapter that Jesus Christ is, and Jesus Christ will be throughout the pages of this epistle, the central focus. For in the first two verses of this epistle, the writer introduces Jesus Christ as the centerpiece of God's redemptive revelation. For while the prophets of old faithfully relayed God's word, Jesus Christ revealed himself to be God's word. He, not, he did not 
merely deliver the word of God. He revealed himself to be the word of God. And in doing so, he showed himself to be more than a prophet, but the very word of God incarnate. In fact, we saw back in verse 2 last Sunday that Jesus Christ so reveals the will and the word of God that he is identified here in this chapter as the very radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. For all that we could hope to see of God's glory, all that we could possibly hope to know about God's nature, we see in the face of Jesus Christ as Jesus Christ is revealed to us through sacred scripture. And of course, as he is revealed to us, we see Jesus in his one glorious office as our mediator. And in that office, he performs three critical functions, that of prophet, priest, and king. For as our prophet, he has spoken for us, to us, from God, and the very universe itself is held together by the word of his power, according to verse 2. As our priest, he made purification for our sins, according to verse 3. He removed from us our guilt, and he has ensured us of total acceptance with God. And as our king, he has ascended to his throne in heaven, and he is now seated on the right hand of the majesty on high, according to verse 3 as well. For it is in each of these critical roles, it is while he performs each of these critical functions, that Jesus Christ shows forth his glory as the one mediator. He shows forth his uniqueness over all those human prophets, priests, and kings who went before him. For Jesus has been shown to be superior to them all, and his place now at the right hand of the majesty on high is the ultimate proof of his superiority over all who came, over all who in some way represented God previously. For the prophets and the priests and the kings of old have passed away. They are gone from the face of the earth. But the reign and rule of Jesus Christ continues unto this day and shall forever continue. And yet Christ's superiority over the greatest of God's prophets, priests, and kings in the past is not all that the writer would have us to see. In fact, there's, there's so much that the writer wants to say. These passages are, are full. They're overflowing with information. He would also have us to see here in our text this morning, Hebrews chapter 5, excuse me, Hebrews chapter 1, verses 5 through 14 in its totality, that Jesus Christ is also superior to those who are now devoted to God's service in heaven. Jesus Christ is also superior to those who are now devoted to God's service in heaven. And this is a reference, as you know, to the elect angels. For the elect angels exist for no other purpose than to worship God and to do his bidding. And they too pale in significance. They too bow in utter submission to Jesus Christ 
who according to the writers of the Hebrews is far superior to them. And why does the writer of this epistle stress this fact that Jesus is superior to the angels? Well, no doubt one reason he does so, brethren, is because the Jewish people of old, and especially those at the time that this epistle was written, looked upon the elect angels of God with great admiration. They looked upon the elect angels of God with a sense of genuine awe. For the angels of God were connected with some of the most significant events of the Old Testament. And many Jews in that day believed that God gave Moses the law of God through angelic mediation. Some Jewish commentators have even speculated that it was an angel's voice that spoke to Moses out of the burning bush in Exodus 2. And of course, the writer of this epistle does not credit angels with these specific acts as Jewish tradition did, but he does acknowledge here in this chapter that angels were greatly used of God. In fact, he refers to the angels down in verse 14 of this chapter as ministering spirits, ministering spirits who have been sent out to serve for the sake of those who would inherit the riches of salvation. And so by virtue of their unique place in God's service and their unique role in ministering to those who would be the recipients of God's saving grace, the angels of God were in many respects superior even to those gifted men of old who were praised earlier in verse 1 of this chapter. For the angels of God had not only done the bidding of God directly from heaven, but they had also been instrumental in orchestrating and announcing some of the most significant events in all of redemptive history. In fact, I'm not going to chronicle them this morning, but just think back in your mind through the Old Testament of all the times that there was angelic intervention, that there were angels who conveyed a message. They had a significant role in the Old Testament. It's easy to understand why the elect angels were held in such high esteem, although it is also clear here from our text that the reverence that many Jews had for angels was far too excessive far too excessive, and especially in light of who the angels were actually commanded to worship. For when we see here in our text this morning who the angels are commanded to worship, we see that the angels were by no means superior to him. They were actually serving the true God. And of course, this brings us to the second reason why the writer of this epistle stresses the superiority of Christ over the angels, and that is to emphasize that Christ has always occupied, even in his humanity, listen to those words carefully, even in his humanity, a far superior place, a far superior inheritance than the angels. For the writer stated back in verse 4 of Hebrews chapter 1 that Jesus has become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. 
For truly there was a time when it may have appeared that Christ was lower than the angels. I mean, after all, Christ took upon himself the form of a servant, right? In the likeness of men. That was his humanity. Christ suffered in a way that the angelic beings do not. In addition, Christ placed himself in a position to be aided and to be helped by angels, such as when he was ministered to and refreshed by angels after his 40-day temptation in the wilderness. And so it is possible that some who were uninformed about Christ's true identity interpreted his humanity as a sign of inferiority to the angels. And they continued to view the angels as being superior over him. And yet here in verse 4, the writer declares that that was never the case. It may have appeared to be that way, but it was never the case. For even prior to his incarnation, Christ was given by divine inheritance from the Father a name that is more excellent than theirs, a name that reveals who he actually is from all eternity. And what is this name? And when was this name, with all the rights and privileges that go along with this name, given to Jesus? Well, brethren, I want us to notice that the writer of this epistle answers these questions by referring back to the Old Testament and to very specific proclamations and promises that God the Father made to Jesus concerning his exalted place and his inheritance. And each of these proclamations, each of these promises, builds upon the other until a beautiful picture emerges of the superiority of Christ over the angels. In fact, in the words of one Bible commentator, what the writer of this book does, beginning at verse 5 and continuing down through verse 14, is to string a necklace of pearls. I want you to imagine that in your mind for just a moment. Stringing a necklace of beautiful pearls. Stringing one scriptural pearl after another until a beautiful necklace appears that displays who Jesus is and why he should be seen and acknowledged as superior to any and all angelic beings. And this morning I want us to look closely at this scriptural necklace until we get to the end of verse 9. And then, Lord willing, next Sunday we'll look at the remaining scriptural pearls down through verse 14 of Hebrews chapter 1. Let us notice that the first two scriptural pearls that the writer adds or strings onto this beautiful piece of jewelry is found here in verse 5. For here in this verse, the writer quotes two declarations from God the Father about who Christ is. And these declarations reveal that name given to Christ, which is above every name. For here in verse 5, the writer first quotes Psalm 2 and verse excuse me, verse 7, and then he quotes 1 Samuel chapter 7 and verse 14. First Psalm 2, 7, then 
1 Samuel 7.14. And in both passages, which ultimately point to the Lord Jesus Christ, he is called what? My son. My son. For this, brethren, is that one name that Jesus received from God the Father that can be received and claimed by no other than Jesus Christ alone, my son. For in the eternal Godhead, Christ has always existed as the eternal son. He's always existed as the second person of the Holy Trinity. Christ has a claim to a name that is uniquely his, my son. In fact, some Bible commentators have pointed out, no doubt you know this, that there are places in the book of Job where angels are referred to as sons of God. We see this in Job chapter 1 and verse 6 and Job chapter 2 and verse 1. However, no angel has ever had the right to the title, the Son of God. No angel has ever had the right to the title of the Son of God. For this name belongs exclusively to Jesus Christ. It is his name by divine decree from God the Father. And to no other being did the Father ever make such an announcement. You are my Son. For the writer asks the question here in verse 5. Notice this. For to which of the angels did God ever say you are my son this day I have begotten you or again I will be to him as a father and he shall be to me a son and of course the answer is to none of the angels was such a statement ever made to none of the angels Rather, Psalm 2 and verse 7, And the words, You are my son, this day I have begotten you, were spoken by God the Father in eternity past. In eternity past. And they were spoken to Christ as God's anointed king, the Messiah, to whom he would give all the nations of the earth as his inheritance. And the Messiah, as you know, is Jesus Christ. And when we read the words, This day I have begotten you, we are not to understand them as saying that Jesus became the Son of God because the Son of God has no beginning. But rather we are to understand this as meaning that in that great continuous day that we think of as eternity, God the Father has decreed that Christ shall be acknowledged as his begotten Son or his divine Son. And Christ shall be entitled to all the crown rights and all the crown privileges that accompany that royal role and name. And with respect to these words, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son, which is quoting from 1 Samuel chapter 7 and verse 14. The writer of this book is reminding that as God has promised David that he would always have an heir, an heir who would build God's house, and that one would ultimately fulfill the prophecy that God had given to David. This passage makes it clear that Jesus Christ is the only one who could do that. Jesus Christ would not only be the object of God's special affection, but the very one who would obey the Father's will perfectly as the appointed heir and the promised son. 
And of course, in raising these questions here in Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 5, the writer is inviting us to acknowledge as well that no angel ever heard such pronouncements or promises, even though they were obedient. Because these words were, were directed to Jesus Christ as the Son of God alone. And yet these are not the only Old Testament pearls that the writer strings here in our text. For we also see here in verses 6 through 9 a, a series of declarations that focus on the rights and the entitlements of Christ as the firstborn. As the firstborn over all creation. And when we hear this phrase, firstborn, we are not to think of Christ as the firstborn among created beings, because Jesus Christ was not created. But as the one who came down to this earth, who lived a righteous and upright life, and who ascended as the appointed servant of God, and the first in this second series of pearls is found here in verse 6. And that is a paraphrase from Psalm 97 in verse 7, which reads as follows. Let all God's angels worship him. Let all of God's angels worship him. So if there was any question in our mind as to how the angels are to respond to Christ, this clarifies it for us for it was not enough that the angels acknowledged Christ as God's rightful heir in terms of our redemption but it's also essential that the angels worship Christ as their creator for to suggest that Christ is somehow inferior to the angels is to get things in reverse order think about that Christ is the creator not the angels for Christ was not indebted to the angels, but rather they were and are indebted to him as their creator, and they are to respond by worshiping him. In fact, brethren, if we could peel back heaven this morning, we would not see the angels exalted over Jesus Christ, but rather we would see all the angels bowed down below Christ. That's what we would see as they fulfill the command in Psalm 97 and verse 7 to worship him. For again, the angels ex exist not to be worshipped, but to be speedy and swift in their worship and ministry to God the Father and to the Son as well. In fact, we read further in Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 7 that of the angels it is said, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. Interesting expression. He makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. Here, the writer of this book is quoting from Psalm 104 and verse 4. He's filled with scripture, is he not? And as he writes, as he moves his inspired pen, these passages from the Old Testament just flow out of his pen and onto the page again and again stringing pearls he knew the Old Testament well this writer did he not and you know that I've suggested that this is the content of Paul's preaching within the Jewish synagogues because Paul knew his Old Testament well but I digress 
Here the writer of this book is quoting Psalm 104 in verse 4. For there is a sense in which we are to view the angels as glorious creatures, for they execute the divine commands of God and of the Son with swiftness of the wind and with strength like a raging fire. Think about that. Swiftness and raging fire. There's no hesitation on the part of the elect angels to obey God. And yet there is one, namely the Son, who is far more glorious than they are. He is not only worthy of their worship, but of our continuous worship as well. Because to Christ the Son belongs a level of honor and glory that neither the angels nor you and I could possibly attain by rights or privileges properly bestowed upon us. And what honor and glory has been bestowed upon Christ? Well, notice it's the glory of an ascended and victorious king. The glory of an ascended and victorious king. For notice here in Hebrews 1, verses 8 and 9, that the writer of the letter now quotes from the greatest kingship psalm of the Old Testament, and that's Psalm 45. Psalm 45, verses 6 and 7, and he does so in direct reference to Jesus Christ. This, in many ways, is the most profound statement to be found in all the collection of sayings from the Old Testament here in Hebrews 1. For notice in Hebrews 1, 8 and 9, that the writer now quotes from this psalm, Psalm 45, 6 and 7, in reference to Christ. And he says, but of the Son, he says. And so there's no doubt who these words are being directed to, right? Of the Son, he says. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness, therefore... God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And of course, within this stirring declaration of Christ's superiority as the Messianic King, we see several features which separate Christ even further from the angels. Just notice the passage. First, Christ is identified plainly as our divine King our divine king. For these words, your throne, O God, could never be spoken to one who was lower, to one who was an angel. No, these words are reserved for God, the Son alone, who has an eternal throne, a throne that was his even before he ascended up to it in glory, a throne that will stand forever and ever, and a throne that will never be given to anyone else, a throne that will never be occupied by a mere created being, by an angel. No, only Jesus Christ, the eternal Son, can and does occupy an exalted throne in heaven. Then secondly, we see from this text, Hebrews 1, 8, and 9, that these words can only be applied to Christ because he alone lived and now rules with a scepter of uprightness. A scepter of uprightness. For Christ alone lived in such a way that his hatred for wickedness was consistently manifested and displayed. 
For whenever Christ extends his scepter, righteousness and not wickedness follows, and his own people are reckoned as righteous because of his great merits alone. No angel exercises a righteous rule. No angel hated wickedness as Christ does. No angel purchased a righteousness for us as Christ did. For only Jesus Christ could be honored with such words, with such a ministry as a gift from God the Father. And then lastly, we see from our text, from verse 9 of Hebrews 1 in particular, that Christ's superiority as a king, who is by no means inferior to the angels, is also seen in the favor that God has bestowed upon him. The favor that God has bestowed upon him. For once again, in reference to Jesus, we read these final words recorded in verse 9 of Hebrews 1. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And in these words, we are confronted not only with the fact that Jesus received an anointing that no angel ever received. When do you read in Scripture about angels being anointed? You never do and never will. But that his anointing was one that would ultimately end in his own rejoicing, his own victory his own exaltation above and far beyond that of his companions. And when did this happen? Did this happen? Yes, it did. For later we're exhorted in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 2 to continue looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, for the joy set before him. Remember that? The joy set before him. Why joy? Because he would be anointed with gladness. Beyond his companions... He who would be anointed with gladness beyond his companions endured the cross first, despising the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And therefore, as we see Jesus, as he's presented here in Hebrews chapter 1, we, we see him not as one who is lower than the angels, one who is inferior to or somehow subservient to the angelic servants of God, but we see him as one who is clearly ascended above them, who is now the recipient of their worship and praise. And if these majestic angelic beings can exercise their place under Christ's rule and can be swift as the wind and mighty as a raging flame and accomplishing his will in heaven and on earth, how much more so should we be that way? How much more so should we be swift and obedient given that we have been redeemed by Christ? Our debt is far greater than theirs. Our ability to obey God has been restored through the work of the Holy Spirit. We should adore Christ. We should see him for who he is. Not as an angel. Christ is not a created being. He is not in a class or order below the inhabitants of heaven. I fear sometimes people get that wrong when Christ descended to this earth and he took on humanity. They think that because he was lower than the angelic heavenly inhabitants, 
in that sense, then he must be inferior to him. But that's not the case. Even on this earth, Christ was still Lord of heaven. Still Lord of heaven. All the heavenly host worshipped him and adored him. May we be as wise as the holy angels who serve Jesus Christ day and night. But let us far exceed the holy angels in our own expressions of gratitude for his great salvation, which only we as humans can know and enjoy. You know there is no salvation, no redemption for angels. So we do not see anywhere in scriptures angels giving praise to God as expressions of gratitude for salvation. But that's where we excel, right? That's how we differ from the angels. For what Christ has given to us is greater than any angel could give. And what we owe to Christ, we owe to him as our God and as our king. And therefore, I ask you this morning, what do you say in your heart and in your mind about this one Jesus Christ who is superior to the angels? What do you say about him? Like many today, do you have a greater respect for the angels than you do for the claims that Christ has over you? No doubt you've seen this yourself. I've seen this many times in talking to people about Christ. People love to talk about angels, angelic beings. They love to tell stories about how people may have had visitations from angels. There's something about angels that people are fascinated about. And I, I think the reason is that is that angels make no claims over your life. But Christ rightfully makes claims over your lives, and people feel uncomfortable about that. People don't want to talk about Christ making claims over their life. I ask you this morning, not to be cute, but would you rather be touched by an angel, as the popular TV show used to talk about, or would you rather be saved and transformed by the power of God? I don't mean to minimize or denounce the work of angels by that conversation. But people seem to want to be touched by an angel in some way that doesn't affect their behavior and make any claims about their loyalty. But they have difficulty because of their depravity accepting the fact that Christ is king and has claims over their lives. Believe me, no angel has done for guilty sinners what Christ has done for those who have been given to him by God the Father. No angel has offered himself as a ransom for sins. No angel has satisfied the wrath of God against sin like Jesus Christ did with his one perfect sacrifice. No, only Jesus Christ could offer what no mere angel could to redeem his people and to build his church. And we who have been saved, we who are being built up into a holy temple of God, a dwelling place for the Spirit, should be the first ones, even before the angels, to recognize who Jesus Christ is and to proclaim his superiority over all things. 
or sense the work of Christ. It is us, the redeemed of the Lord, who should be gladly leading the worship of Almighty God and of our Messiah. May the words of Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 9, which is a string of scriptural pearls woven together for the glory of God, be the means that God uses to draw us to Jesus Christ if we have not trusted in him already this morning. And may our zeal to serve Christ be like that of the elect angels of God. May we be swift to obey him. May we be unfailing. May we be burning. May we be on fire in our devotion to him and to the advancement of his glorious kingdom. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for this wonderful portion of Scripture that reminds us in a very powerful way, in a very profound way of who Jesus Christ is. By looking back into the pages, the promises, the proclamations of the Old Testament, and cherry-picking, as it were, statements made about Christ even before he came to this earth, statements even about the angels themselves and who they worship, and weaving them together into this beautiful scriptural necklace so that we can behold its beauty, so that we can recognize exactly what is transpiring. For one day, this necklace, as it were, will adorn the Lord Jesus Christ for all these statements are ultimately about him. And that's what the Hebrew writer would have us to understand, that the Old Testament in all of its richness is about Jesus Christ. And even when we go to the Old Testament to read about, to learn about, to study about being so significant as angels, we can't ignore the fact that they exist for Jesus and that all that they do, all that the elect angels do is in service to him. And in that sense, the angels are a good example for us as the people of God. For we need to be completely and devoted, completely devoted and committed to the Lord Jesus and his service. And we need to be swift and diligent and eager to accomplish his will, which he reveals to us in his word. And we pray for the grace and strength to do that today. Please help us as we continue in this study to realize Christ's superiority over the angels and not be deceived into thinking that there's a reason to take our eyes away from Jesus, even if it is for a moment to admire the angelic beings. No, our eyes should always be fixed upon Christ, and the elect angels of God exist for that very purpose, to minister to us, as it were, as the servants of God and the recipients of salvation for the purpose that we might glorify Christ more. Bless your word. Seal it to our hearts. Draw us close to the Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, if there's somebody here today outside of Christ, 
who is fascinated by, intrigued by angels, help them to see, help them not to be distracted in such a way that they fail to see that salvation is found in Jesus Christ alone. May you grant faith and repentance to those who are outside of Jesus Christ today. For we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.